0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 3rd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The religious liberty school choice case Carson V. Macon comes at the end of two decades of educational freedom cases. Michael Bendis is of the Institute for Justice. He was on the winning side of Carson V. Macon, advancing parental choice in education. He says there are still some big unresolved questions for advocates of religious and educational freedom. And he spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day festivities last month. But I'm going to focus a little bit differently on Carson as a school choice case. I'm not a religious liberty litigator per se. I am a school choice litigator. Um, IJ defends school choice programs around the country. And so I'm going to focus on Carson from, from that perspective while it's certainly addressing the, the the religion clause issues that came up in the litigation. Now, since the modern school choice movement was in its infancy back in the uh, early 90s, um, the big unresolved question was whether choice is permissible under the Federal Establishment Clause. Um, opponents of choice argued that because some parents might choose religious schools, that somehow constituted a state establishment of religion. And thankfully, the Supreme Court roundly rejected that argument back in 2002 in a case called Zellman v. Simmons-Harris. The court said, as long as the program is neutral toward religion, meaning religious and non-religious schools can participate, and so long as the program operates on the private choice of the parent, it's perfectly fine under the Establishment Clause. But the opponents of school choice are a dogged bunch, and so they didn't just pack up and go home at that point. They retrained their focus to state constitutions. specifically to provisions in state constitutions that you might have heard of. They're called Blaine Amendments, and they're found in some 37 state constitutions. And generally speaking, they prohibit public funding of religious or typically the term is sectarian schools. And opponents of school choice, ever since Selman, have seized on these to attack school choice programs uh, in court, arguing that they violate these Blaine provisions. Now, you might think that there's a problem if a state constitutional provision singles out and targets religion for disfavor, that that could create some problems under the federal free exercise clause. And we certainly think it does. But over the last five years or so, the opponents of educational choice have had a theory as to why that's not the case. And that theory is something called the status use distinction. Basically, what it says is that while it might be unconstitutional to withhold a public benefit from someone because they have a religious status or religious affiliation. It's perfectly permissible to withhold a public benefit from someone because they might put it to a religious use, such as procuring a religious education. In other words, these folks recognize that it's not constitutional to, uh, uh, to discriminate because someone is religious, but it's perfectly permissible to discriminate because they might do religious stuff. Um, And that, in my view, is is absurd. And thankfully, in Carson versus Macon, the case I'm here to talk about, the Supreme Court seemed to uh, agree and killed the status-use distinction. Now, before we get to the happy death of the status-use distinction, it's important to look at the origin story of of the distinction. The status-use distinction was born on June 26, 2017 at 10.09 a.m. It's at that time, on that day, that the Supreme Court handed down another decision, Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Comer. Now, Trinity Lutheran involved a playground resurfacing program uh, that the state of Missouri had. Basically, the state provided monetary grants to nonprofits so that they could resurface their playgrounds with scrap tire material in order to uh, uh, protect the knees of the kids playing on the on the, uh, on the playground. Trinity Lutheran Church, which operates a preschool, applies for one of these grants. It's denied. Um, and the state's justification for denying it is the state Blaine Amendment. Uh, Missouri has a Blaine Amendment that prohibits aid to uh, sectarian institutions. And so the state says, sorry, Trinity Lutheran, you can't get it. Trinity Lutheran challenges its exclusion. The case goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And thankfully, the Supreme Court concludes that that violates the Free Exercise Clause of the United States Constitution because it singles out out and excludes uh, an entity from this public benefit program simply because of its religious status, simply because of its identity as a church. But then the court, or more accurately, four justices uh, in the majority drop a footnote in the opinion it's a 27-word footnote, and it says this. This case involves expressed discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. Now, again, this was four justices signing on to this footnote, not a majority of the court. And the footnote doesn't say there is a status-use distinction. It just says we're not addressing whether you know, a a use based exclusion. We're simply addressing an exclusion that turns on religious status. But nevertheless, school choice opponents immediately seized on that footnote on those 27 words to argue that state law could bar, that Blaine amendments could be used to attack school choice programs on the theory that they allow parents to put their benefit to the use of procuring a religious education. Now, Like other members of the uh, 27 Club, this 27 uh, word footnote was not long for the world. And so as we'll see, it went the way of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse, and other members of that club. Um, Now we thought we might get some resolution on this issue, on on the uh, constitutionality of use-based exclusions in another case, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. Um, That case concerned a school choice program in the state of Montana. Uh, As originally enacted, it allowed religious schools to participate, but then the state agency charged with implementing it promulgates a regulation that says uh, no religious schools. So we challenge that on behalf of families eligible for the program and uh, the case goes up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court holds correctly that that exclusion violates the free exercise clause. Um, Missouri, like, Mo- I'm sorry, Montana, like Missouri before it, had said, well, we have a Blaine Amendment. It prohibits state funding to, to, to religious institutions. And the court said, look, this is a, basically a straightforward application of Trinity Lutheran. We said you can't exclude an institution simply because of its religious status in Trinity Lutheran, and that's precisely what your how your Blaine Amendment is being applied in this situation. So a great win, but the court dodges the question of use-based discrimination in its constitutionality. But the status-use distinction thankfully dies in Carson this term. Um, now, Carson involves another school choice program in Maine. Uh, Maine is a rural state, there are not many public schools. And if a town doesn't operate a public school or doesn't contract with a, another school to educate its resident students, it has to pay tuition uh, to the school of the parent's choice. It can be a public school, it can be a private school, it can be in-state, it can be out-of-state, it can be out of the country, but the one thing it could not be was religious. Uh, Maine, since 1981, has had a statute that specifically prohibits, quote, sectarian schools from participating in the program. So we challenged this exclusion in the wake of Trinity Lutheran, and we thought it should be an easy win in, in light of Trinity Lutheran. Uh, But Maine wised up after Trinity Lutheran and after Espinoza, the state adjusted its justification for the exclusion. It says, you know, we're not really excluding these schools because they're religiously affiliated. We're excluding them because they do religious stuff. They teach religion, and that's different. And the Supreme Court didn't address that in Trinity Lutheran. It didn't address that in Espinoza. And You know, the main pointed to footnote three, that 27 word footnote and said, this is perfectly fine. Um, The First Circuit bought that reasoning and upheld the exclusion. Again, pointing to footnote three in uh, Trinity Lutheran. And also by redefining the benefit. Remember the benefit is tuition to attend a public or private school. The First Circuit said, well, really the benefits a substitute for a public school. And of course, a public school has to be secular. Therefore, Maine can permissibly require that the schools that children attend under this program be secular. Um, we appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed uh, with us that that uh, is just as unconstitutional as the discrimination that was going on in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza. The court starts out the first half of its opinion by basically saying this is a straightforward application of those cases. In, in fact, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts for the majority says, this is simply an application of the unremarkable principles of Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza. And when I got to that point in the opinion, the day it came down, I'm like, oh, great, we, you know, we win, but the court again dodges the question of the status use distinction. But Chief Justice Roberts went on. And he took issue with what he called two recharacterizations that the First Circuit engaged in a recharacterization of the benefit and a recharacterization of the exclusion. Now, with respect to the benefit, remember the First Circuit had said, really, the benefit here is a substitute for a public education. Chief Justice Roberts says, it's no such thing. The statute defines the benefit as tuition at the public or approved private school of the student's choice. It says nothing about a substitute for a public education. And if you look at how the tuition program operates, it doesn't do anything to ensure that these schools are like public schools. The participating schools in the tuition program, while they had to be non-religious, could be unlike public schools in a whole host of respects. They could charge tuition, number one. They didn't have to accept all comers. They didn't have to follow state curriculum. They didn't have to hire state-certified teachers. They could discriminate on grounds that public schools could not. They could be, and many were, single sex. So Chief Justice Roberts says, no, this is not a substitute for a public education. The First Circuit was simply recharacterizing the benefit in order to justify the very discrimination that Maine was engaged in. And then Chief Justice Roberts turns to the status use distinction. And as he accurately uh, uh, says, the the First Circuit's opinion is really recharacterizing the exclusion in this case. Um, He begins by saying, look, yeah, there was this footnote in Trinity Lutheran, but we never suggested that use-based discrimination is any less offensive to the free exercise clause. And then he explains why. And he correctly points out that the very purpose of a religious school, that is a school with a religious status, is to engage in the conduct of providing a religious education. And he, he, he cites the, case, the court's earlier decision in Our Lady of Guadalupe, where, he sa- where the court says that educating young people in their faith, inculcating its teachings, and training them to live their faith are responsibilities that lie at the very core of the mission of a private religious school. So again, he's pointing out that it is the very religious status of schools that impels them to engage in the use or the conduct of providing a religious education. So there's no meaningful distinction between status and use. And then he also points out that if we were to give effect to um, Maine's exclusion and to allow them to parse out religious uses, then we're really just inviting the state to engage in scrutiny of religious schools curriculum to determine, um, you know. What's sufficiently irreligious? What's uh, too religious? And that just invites government entanglement with religion uh, and denominational preferences. The, it allows the, the the government to pick winners and losers in terms of uh, which schools are too religious to participate and which schools are sufficiently irreligious. And the Establishment Clause prohibits both of those things. And so the court holds. Regardless of how the benefit and restriction are described, the program operates to identify and exclude otherwise eligible schools on the basis of their religious exercise." So real quickly, what does Carson do for the school choice movement? What does it not do? Uh, Number one, it puts to to, to bed the status-use distinction. Um, It also puts to bed the Blaine Amendments. Now, you'll notice when I talked about Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza, I talked about Blaine Amendments. Maine, interestingly, doesn't have a Blaine Amendment, even though it was the home of their namesake, James G. Blaine. Um, It excluded schools based on state statute, not a state constitutional provision. So you might think that Carson has little to say about Blaine Amendments. That's not the case. The court, in the opinion, actually equates Maine's statute with a Blaine Amendment, specifically with the Blaine Amendment that was at issue in Espinoza. The court says, while the wording of the Montana and Maine provisions is different, their effect is the same. So the state is saying it doesn't matter whether this is a statute-based exclusion or a constitutional-based exclusion, you cannot single out and exclude religious options this way. Um, And that's important because many states, Um, have Blaine Amendments that use kind of use-based language. Um, Many of them target schools and institutions with a religious affiliation or status, but many target particular religious conduct. And so, for example, Arizona, Utah, Washington, their Blaine Amendments all speak to religious worship, exercise, or instruction. They prohibit government funding of those things. And so now it's clear that even when a, a Blaine Amendment speaks in that kind of use-based language, it cannot be applied to single out and exclude religious options from a school choice program. Now, what doesn't does not uh, what, what doesn't Carson resolve? I think three big issues in the educational choice uh, uh, sphere. The first is whether or not states can condition participation in school choice programs on certain admissions or employment policies. Specifically, um, uh, can a state say you can't participate if you consider sexual orientation or gender identity um, in employment or in admissions? The reason the court didn't speak to that in Carson was because Maine didn't concern itself with that. It excluded all religious schools, and the Kent School found out that out the hard way when it applied to participate in the program. Um, The Kent School does not consider sexual orientation or gender identity in hiring or admissions, yet it was nevertheless excluded because the state deemed it a sectarian school. So that question, the extent to which participation can be conditioned on employment and admissions policies is going to be resolved, uh, presumably at some point in the future. In fact, there's a case, Yeshiva University versus YU Pride Alliance, which is making its way through the courts now that may speak on many of those issues. And then really quickly, the uh, the two other things that Carson does not resolve for the school choice movement. Number one, the permissible, permissibility of applying what I call public-private blains to bar school choice programs. These are blain amendments that exist in a handful of states that don't single out and exclude religious schools specifically, but rather all private schools. And so they don't, at least on their face, discriminate against religious schools. And Carson doesn't speak directly to them but as I point out in the article in in, in this year's review, I think there are a number of constitutional problems even with those facially neutral Blaine Amendments that render them just as problematic as the more traditional Blaine Amendment. And then finally is the charter school question. Uh, A lot of media in the run-up to the decision and in the wake of the decision suggested that it was opening the door to religious charter schools. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to that issue. Charter schools, while often typically privately operated, are nevertheless public schools. And therefore you have completely different establishment clause concerns when you're dealing with uh, whether or not a charter school may be religious uh, or engage in religious instruction. But nevertheless, Carson resolves the last remaining major uh, constitutional issue concerning choice. Uh, Zellman held it's permissible to include religious options. Carson now makes absolutely clear that state law may not be applied to exclude them. Thank you. Michael Bendis is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.